What's up, everyone? This is episode number 107 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Okay, well, I am pretty excited about today's episode. Just to give you a rundown real quick, I've got a few odds and ends at the start that I'm going to talk about. As usual, I've got a few pieces of mail I'd like to share with you. And then today's main segment is part two of my History of Logoman Patch Card series. Last week focused on the pre-Panini era. This week I get to talk about everything since then, so you want to make sure to stay tuned for that. But first, some of you might remember a Roy Hibbert Jumbo Tag one-of-one card that I talked about in last week's mail segment. And I said, you know, I'm going to have to get a picture of this. Well, I was trying to get a good picture of it for social media, but I just, I can't ever get good pictures of cards in BGS Slab. So this card was just sitting on my desk with the David West from the same set. They're both in BGS Slabs. The more I looked at them, the more I wanted the slabs gone. And then Sunday, I guess you could say boredom hit. So I went back and I watched Steve, aka S. Halley's video, where he cracked his Paul Pierce out of the slab. I was a little scared about damaging my cards, and truth be told, his method looked a little violent to me. He snips the top, and he snips the bottom, and then he pulls the pieces apart like he's um, Rafiki at the start of The Lion King. I checked with another friend, also named Steve, aka at Vintage Pacers on Instagram, about how he cracked slabs. Well, he showed me a method with a hammer and a butter knife, which, you know, by all means is functional. He, he puts a hammer, he, or he puts the slab over the edge of something, holds the slab down, hammers just the corner where the bee and the becket is, um, and then he uses the knife to pry things apart. Well, um, you know, I don't know if I trusted myself as much with a hammer, even though I do trust Steve and I trust that method. So I took my two slabs and another junk slab out to the porch with a pair of wire cutters. I probably should have upgraded my tools first, but whatever. If the top and bottom snip method worked with the junk card, I'd try it on the others as well. Well, ultimately, it worked, and it was a little nerve-wracking, but it was also oddly satisfying. And I've had these guys on my show, and they've kind of alluded to that fact, but I've never experienced that for myself. So anyway, I took video of the process and uploaded it to my YouTube for anyone that's interested in watching. I've already received some um, interesting commentary on the whole thing, so make sure to go check that out. That's on my YouTube. Speaking of BGS Labs, I've seen a lot of coverage of the Dallas Card Show on social media from this past weekend. Thanks to everyone that took the time to post, whether it was videos or pictures or whatever. Well, according to the blowout forums, there was a fake 1997 Kobe Bryant Star Rubies that was being shopped around at the show. And not surprising, it was in a BGS slab, an 8.5 to be exact. But wait, it gets better. It was also certified by Mike Baker Authenticated. And if the name of that company rings a bell, it's because I talked about him in episode 86 that was titled, Who Grades the Graders? The big knock on him at the time was that he was having a lot of trouble spelling words correctly on his placards that went out with the cards. 
That might not seem like a big deal to some people, but his whole business is certifying details. And this copy that he certified had actually been discussed on the blowout forums back in 2016. So I don't know if there's a level of service where he adds a five-minute Google search, but that might be something worth considering. But wait, there's more. There's another fake copy of a 97 Kobe Star Rubies that was also floated around the Dallas Card Show. You guessed it, in a BGS slab, this time a nine. And oh yeah, it was also certified by Mike Baker. So while my original question in episode 86 was who grades the graders, I guess the better question needs to be who grades the graders that are grading the graders? Welcome to 2021. This is some next level stuff right here. Okay, on to the mail. Enough about slabs. On to the mail. The first card I want to talk about this week that I received is a 1999-2000 SPX Radiance Parallel of Jeff Foster. And a lot of other rookies from that year have a base card in the set that's autographed. Well, not Jeff. Some of those are numbered to 500. I know Ron Artest is out of 2,500. Actually, a listener named Benny sent me one of those a couple months ago, so thank you very much for that. But like I said, Jeff Foster doesn't have the autographed version, so his base card is numbered to 3,500, and there are only two parallels of that card. So it's the Radiance, which is numbered to 100, and the Spectrum, which is a one of one. So that's quite the jump. Imagine a set today that has numbering that goes from 3,500, then to 100, then to one. So like I said, this is the Radiance version out of 100. This one showed up on eBay for $20 or best offer. At that price, I didn't even bother with an offer. But for whatever reason, the seller relisted this card for the same price every single day. And I think I let a week pass or maybe not even that long. It was at least five days though. And I threw out a $5 offer just to see what would happen. I figured maybe they really wanted to get rid of it if they kept relisting it. Well, they accepted the offer with no counter. And I thought $5 shipped was a great price for that. So they mailed this card in a thin cardboard mailer as part of the new eBay standard standard envelope program. And per their site, this is a, quote, low-cost service via eBay labels to securely ship single, ungraded trading cards priced $20 and under. So this is a, you know, this card's a perfect candidate for that program. Who knows if that person would have listed this in the past, and even if they did, I would have ended up spending double for the card. So I don't do any selling on eBay anymore, but as a buyer, I'm excited about this program, and I think there's a good chance it helps unearth some more rare but inexpensive cards that people are looking to get for their PCs. Okay, next package. So this next package is one that I opened on my YouTube channel. But it's from a big Sacramento Kings fan named Eric, also known as at PC on Instagram. And this transaction has a bit of history behind it too. So um, first off, I'll tell you, he sent me a package of, of miscellaneous things that included a card of Jeff Foster getting scored on, which that has to be very rare. Um, one, to have the card, and two, the fact you know he didn't get scored on. Um, it had a Danny Granger Greats of the Game Auto number to 99. And the centerpiece of the deal for me was a 2005-2006 Topps Total Gold Danny Granger Rookie numbered to 10. And I've talked about this product in this set before. Topps Total was a low-end set. It's not glossy. It's not glamorous. 
There weren't a lot of hits in these products, but the ones that were there were few and far between. And I liked it because it gave player collectors and team collectors a new batch of rare cards to chase, especially for guys that wouldn't show up in a normal base set. So I started the Pacers Gold set when the product came out. I took a break from it for a few years, but for the most part, I've been chasing this thing pretty hard. So I've needed four cards for a long time now. It's Danny Granger, Sarunas Yesikavagis, Scott Pollard, and, figure this one out, Ron Artest. You could never find that card for Ron. Um, I might have seen it around the time the set came out, but if I did, I probably refused to buy any Ron cards then out of principle. I was pretty upset that he had asked to be traded um, after everything that he put the franchise through. So, anyway, at the same time I was pursuing... Pacers tops total printing plates and golds. Someone posted a thread about them on the blowout forums. This was May of 2017. So we're we're talking almost four years ago now. Eric replied to that thread with a scan of a Scott Pollard plate and a Danny Granger gold, but stated they were both part of his PC, right? Well, what a tease. But um, in all honesty, I appreciated knowing where they were. I've heard people ask, is it better to know where your chase cards are if they're not available, or would you just as soon not know? Well, I'd rather know. And I think this segment and some others that I've done recently will illustrate why. There's a chance that card could make its way back to you in the future. So anyway, he posted them. He said they weren't available. I probably asked about them a couple times in the year that followed with no luck. This was all before Wax Museum Podcast was even a thing. And a couple years pass, and he and I connect on Instagram. This was around Easter of last year. I didn't even realize he was the same person from the blowout thread. He remembered, though, and pointed out that he had teased me with those in the past. It was all good-natured. He wasn't trying to torture me or anything. And some of you might remember this from the mail segment of episode 71. But at one point, he sent the Pollard plate to me and said... This belongs in your Topps Total Pacers collection. So we talked a little after, and he said something to the effect of, I'll send you the Granger whenever you track down the other three you need. Well, fast forward to a few weeks ago. He watches one of the lot videos that I posted on my YouTube. Remember, you know, I'm not posting those to try and move that stuff to other people. I just thought people would enjoy them. Well, one of the cards in that lot was a Chris Webber Topps Gold numbered to 99. It was just the paper gold, not the chrome. And he messages me and says, I'm interested in the Weber, but don't look up the price for the last one that was sold. Well, that last part was in jest. And of course, that was like placing a big red button in front of me that says, do not press this button. So, of course, I looked up the last sale price and it was something stupid like $50, which, you know, I don't think it was worth that much. I I know there's been a revolving door of Weber collectors over the last 10 to 15 years that I can remember and for some reason his stuff still goes high. Um, So anyway having dealt with Eric before and having had great interactions with him I wasn't going to ask much in return for the Weber so I just said you know what we'll figure something out. Before I even pitched an idea to him he offered the Granger gold and the Granger greats of the game auto so I didn't expect him to give up the gold That was a pleasant surprise. Um, It was a very generous one, too. I know some people will say it's not from a valuable set. And, you know, I don't know if it's really a valuable card at all, but it's one that I've wanted, and I haven't been able to track down. So it was significant to me. And we made the deal, and he threw in some fun extras. And finally, I asked him why he traded me the Granger, and he said, 
I got tired of waiting for you to find the other three. So kudos to you, Eric. Thanks for the trade. Thanks for the extras. And thanks for making this hobby fun. All right. The last card I got in the mail today that I'm going to talk about is technically a sticker, but I'm going to treat it as a card. Um, About a month or so ago, I was posting the uh, Basketball Cards Reddit, which um, honestly can be hit or miss. It's, It's really just a lot of people asking if stuff should be graded, but I do try and hang around there because I I think, um, I don't know, you know, you just never know what's going to come up, right? You never know what's going to happen. Well, here's an example with that. So someone posted a picture of a sticker with the title 1958 Wilt Chamberlain Globetrotters card. Help me identify set and other info, please. My first thought when I looked at it was, well, that's not Wilt. And and it's hard to tell, but I'm pretty sure it's not Wilt. I think it's someone else. I couldn't figure out who. I've dug around quite a bit now, and I still can't figure it out. But I had never seen this set, so I did some major searching online. It took me a while, but I finally figured out that it was from an Italian multi-sport sticker set from 1956. And I posted this info, and the person who owned the card or owned the sticker, he did a little searching, and, and he confirmed we reached the consensus on it. So... He reached out to me later, and we got to talking about older sets and content and such. And it turns out that he had purchased a lot of this stuff and was more interested in the soccer. So several weeks later, he reached back out to me to let me know that um, he had done well with the soccer, and he wanted to offer the Globetrotter sticker to me as a thank you for helping to identify the set. Well, I definitely wasn't going to turn down an obscure Globetrotters release, so I know I've said it before. But someday I am going to do an entire episode on the Globetrotters because their history is fascinating to me. Um, So I get this sticker in the mail, and it's something really unique that I'm happy to add to my collection. There's no player information on the card. It doesn't even say Globetrotters on it anywhere. Um, And the main text on the back says, Un tiro de espaldas, which I believe means a shot from behind. So there are 147 stickers in this set. Five of them are basketball. One of the other ones that I've seen says Tiro Sin Acierto, which I think translates to something like a missed shot. So this little sticker has sent me down multiple rabbit holes in the last week, and that's one of the things that I love about this hobby. I need to post a picture of it to social media, and maybe one of you can even help me figure out who this globetrotter is, because I'm stumped. So... Thank you, Brayden, first off for the gift, and secondly for helping me to grow my hobby knowledge. All right, before I move into today's main segment on Panini-era Logoman cards, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support the show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, Go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com and click either the Fanatics link at the top or the eBay logo at the top. Shop as planned and the Wax Museum Podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo, and now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, I know most of you probably listened to last week's episode about pre-Panini Logo Man patch cards, but it has been a week since that came out. 
So I'm going to give a real quick summary before I move on to today's portion. So um, Alan Siegel, who you heard on episode 105, by the way, he created the NBA logo in 1969. Um, The league used it for promotional materials early on. They used it for shorts one year in 1970-71. There were versions of it that showed up on uniforms and warm-ups from time to time, but it didn't show up on jerseys regularly until the 86-87 season. Since then, there haven't been a lot of changes. In 2014, it moved to the back of the jersey. And then in 2017, the league switched to Nike and used a vinyl patch instead of a stitched version. As for cards, memorabilia cards came onto the scene in the late 1990s. Uh, Pieces of Logoman patches showed up, but there weren't any dedicated pack-pulled Logoman cards until the 2002-2003 season, where Topps made several sets and then Upper Deck had a set as well. Both companies continued manufacturing these throughout the rest of their NBA license. Fleer jumped in for a couple of years as well, and then when everyone realized Panini was going to take over the exclusive license in the 2009-2010 season, Topps and Upper Deck carried out a pretty incredible patch purge between a Topps Logo Men set, an SP Game Used Logo Men set, and the last NBA version of Exquisite, the two companies cranked out an astonishing 933 Logo Man patches. Um, keep in mind there were some duels and triples in Exquisite, so this was not 933 different cards, but still, that's a lot of patches to come out in a span of a little over a month. And then when January of 2010 rolled around, it was Panini's time to shine. That's where this segment picks up. As you're going to see, they went about things a little different but I don't want to get ahead of myself here. All right, so even though Panini had an exclusive with the NBA since 2010, they were allowed to start making cards at the start of the 2009-2010 season. That means there was a little bit of overlap with the card companies at the end of 2009, but whereas Topps and Upper Deck were in full-on asset purging, Panini really didn't have a lot to work with in general. They, They took over Donruss or Playoff, But that company never made basketball, so there was no backlog of materials and they didn't have a history of basketball designs. So they carried over some football stuff, which included a product called Prestige. And they had already been doing this in football, but they had um, cards with manufactured league logo patches. For NFL, it was a shield. For NBA, it was a big signed piece of cloth with a logo man patch on it. And the only reason I mention this is because I've seen some people confused these with real logo man patches before these are manufactured they were never game worn they weren't even player worn they weren't even on a jersey at one point um and upper deck had done a little of this too or some version of this in the past personally i hated them but some people like them we all have different tastes um there wasn't a lot of memorabilia in general during panini's first season And the big batch of, uh, the first big batch, I should say, of relics came in February with certified, but there still weren't any Logo Man patches. Those didn't come until May when a product called Timeless Treasures was released. And for the record, this product had some parallels that were labeled as Logo Man sets, but they were just the Logo Man portion of the laundry tag. And I've said it previously, and maybe I'm just um, being picky here, but I don't consider those to be true Logo Man cards. And I know I'm not alone on that. The only reason I clarify, though, is because when I refer to Logo Man cards 
in an episode, I'm, I'm not talking about tags. I will not refer to tags in that way. So that way, you know, um, there's, there's no blurred lines there. Okay. Um, there were, however, a couple of small logo man sets in this Timeless Treasures product. And aside from a Darren Williams that was numbered to five and a Chris Paul that was out of four, most of these only had one or two copies, and that included LeBron James. That same month, which once again was May, we got Panini Absolute Memorabilia, which was the first Panini set to include rookie Logo Man cards. Some had autos, some didn't, but they were all one of one. So for reference, this was the first true Curry Logo Man patch. And there were some laundry tags in Timeless Treasures, but like I said, I don't really count those. Um, and, you know, I mentioned the first Curry. Just for reference, he wasn't a huge deal then. People would have been more concerned about guys like Blake Griffin and newly named Rookie of the Year Tyreek Evans, but um, there still was some attention on Curry. Uh, I would say the most well-known 2009-2010 Logo Man cards came from a product that's still popular today, National Treasures. There were several nice Logo Man sets in that product. The actual set that's called NBA Logo Man has a mixture of rookies and veterans in it, but they're all one-of-ones. And then there's a Colossal Logo Man set and a Colossal Signatures Logo Man set. The numbering varies on those between one and five copies. I have one of the non-autographed Tyler Hansbrough copies, which is numbered to five. So he's got 11 Logo Man patch cards in the product, as does Steph Curry and some of the other rookies, not all of them. Um, that's a much different approach than we got with Upper Decker tops with rookies, and that's carried on through this day. So um, that was really it as far as Logo Man cards in Panini's first season. You might have noticed that they established a pattern of inserting those cards mainly in their high-end sets, and that's something that's still pretty consistent to this day. You're not going to get lucky and pull a true you know, logo man from a product like Hoops or Donruss. Okay? You're, not, you're just not going to go open a pack at retail, provided you can even find it now, and pull a true logo man. That's just not the way it works. So, um, Like I said, though, they entered the game with little or no history in basketball. I know some people are going to point out that they made stickers in the 90s, but I'm talking about modern cards. I've never been involved with the industry, so obviously I didn't work for the company, but it appears as if they spent the first five to six months of the season just gathering materials and trying to get their footing, which is understandable. Okay, now that I have the first year out of the way, I'm not going to cover every single Logo Man set, especially in the more recent Panini years. Instead, I'd rather hit on some of the innovations rarities, and interesting stories revolving around these cards from here on out. So, if the Trading Card Database website is correct, Panini manufactured 19 products in their first full season. And in the season that followed, I counted 16. Most of them were returning products, and the same goes for the Logo Man sets. There were a couple of new products, however, including Gold Standard. And Gold Standard had some of the manufactured Logo Man auto pieces that I've referenced already. I've talked about how those confused some people. Well, if you thought that was bad, 2010-2011 Elite Black Box had what was probably the most convincing manufactured Logo Man patch cards to date. Um, and that was a set called Passing, I think it was called Passing the Torch. On one side uh, of these cards... There was a retired player, and then on the other side, there was an up-and-coming player, sometimes even from the same franchise, and there were they had autographed, most of them were autographed. They had Logo Man patch cards on each side. They looked 
um, you know, like a true logo man patch window. Um, and I, I hated these things simply because they tricked people. And I don't think Panini was trying to trick people. I think they were just trying to create a nice looking card. Um, but anyway, just know that those are out there and, and be careful with those. Once again, the series isn't about manufactured logo man patches, but I think it's important that people can recognize the difference between the two. Okay. Um, so now I'm going to switch my focus back to real logo man patches, which we did not find in any 2011, 2012 release. And the main reason for that was there was an NBA lockout and we only got a handful of products. And while the majority of those products had memorabilia cards, I went back and verified on the checklist. As far as I can see, we did not get a single logo man set that season. However, Panini would more than make up for that in 2012-2013. Some of that was the result of a double rookie class. Some of it was the result of new products. Um, as for returning stuff goes, National Treasures gave us a nice variety of Logo Man cards. Some of these sets even had variations of patches from stuff like NBA Green Week. Um, and I really like the duels in this product, even though they were numbered a little too high in my opinion. Some of them had three to four copies, but the pairings were really cool. It was got, you know, pairings like Stockton and Malone, D-Wade and LeBron, Shaq and Penny, and so on. Um, and that was all very nice, but it wasn't nearly as exciting as Panini's um, Logo Man offerings in a new product called Immaculate. In addition to the general mix of rookie and veteran patches that was standard, in most high-end products, there were some really unique pieces that stood out to me. For example, Danny Green had a Noche Latina Logo Man numbered to two in one of the Jumbo Patch sets. The real big newsmaker, though, was a set called Six Star Logos. This was a horizontal booklet set that featured six Logo Man patches, three on one side, three on the other. So think about the double rookie class and all of the possibilities. The setup was very similar to the preferred booklets where... We had booklets based on matchups, specific teams. In fact, I think the Oklahoma City Thunder one just hit eBay um, earlier this week. Um, some of them focused on player positions, some focused on high draft picks, etc. And Or like there was a booklet that featured all UNC guys. The only ones that really made me scratch my head were the booklets that featured just two players. How are you going to make a Logo Man card with six Logo Man patches from two players? Well, Panini did. Uh, maybe there was a you know reasonable explanation for that. I've never seen one. So, for example, one of them was Bradley Beal and Chandler Parsons. On the left side, you had three different Bradley Beal headshots and Logo Man patches, and the right side did the same with Chandler Parsons. There were three other cards that were like that as well. It didn't make a lot of sense to me, but otherwise I thought the set was really cool. Okay. 2013 rolled around and Panini added an NBA final set and preferred. You guys know I'm really thankful for that. Um, they had a 101 parallel that included Logo Man patches from the 2013 finals. There were only 12 players in this set. I feel like those are significant pieces of NBA history. There were a few players that I know of that didn't make the preferred set but had finals Logo Man patches in the Immaculate Insignia set that year. I know I've seen Dewan uh, not Dewan Wagner, I'm sorry, Dewan Blair. Big difference there. Maybe. Um, Mike Miller and Joel Anthony. And I'd love to track any of those down. Other than that, though, we got a lot of the same types of sets. 
Um, I do, however, have to talk about one particular card from National Treasures, though, and that's the Giannis 101 Logoman Auto. Some of you might have seen this before, um, not surprisingly, because it sold recently for a very high amount. Well, when I say it sold, I should say a version of it sold or a variation of it sold, and here's why. Back in October of 2014, a poster started a thread on Blowout titled, Sad I had to send 101 NT Logoman Giannis back for a refund. And then inside that thread he says, For public record I had to make this new thread. Unfortunately I had to return one of my 101 mail day cards. Seller sent me a full refund for the NT Logoman Giannis 101 rookie card auto. Back of the card had some nasty yellow stain Seller said he called Panini and they told him how to get the stain off and that the stain was common on the 101 Logomans, which is very odd. Also, the front surface of the card had a hairline surface dent you had to hold up to the light to see. Could still grade BGS 8.5 to Mint 9. However, I feel very disappointed that I had to send it back. It's back up on eBay for anyone else who wants it. And just for reference, the sale of this card was for $7,000. Which, you know, you might hear that today and think that seems low. There were a lot of people that criticized him then just for the price of that card. You know, I, I remember seeing people say, why would you spend $7,000 on someone that's unproven? Uh, remember, those were just much different times. But either way, the whole situation seemed odd. And a lot of people in that, and like I said, it was a lot of money. Some people in that thread even speculated that buyer's remorse was really to blame. Um, imagine buying a $7,000 Giannis Logoman Rookie Card 101 for $7,000 and having buyer's remorse. So like I said, these were different times. And to add fuel to the fire, when the card was relisted, the yellow stain appeared to have disappeared, even though the damage itself was still there. So the original poster chimed in again. He said, seller said he called Panini. They told him how to remove the yellowing, and he did, and he relisted it. I didn't even want to attempt to remove the yellow stain. That plus the surface dent along the front of the card together helped me make a final decision to return it back. Sure, it was for my PC, but eventually all PC cards gotta get sold one day, and I didn't want any trouble moving it in the future because of its condition. 7K is a whole lot of money to spend on a piece of cardboard, and if it got yellow stains and a dent in it, you would really want to keep it. It's not buyer's remorse, it's damaged goods. Okay, now, I've never spent $7,000 on a card, but I have returned cards that I really wanted because there was damage that wasn't disclosed. In fact, I talked about an Aaron Holiday like that at one point on this show. Um, he got a lot of criticism still, and eventually he said, I hope this thread gets deleted now, there's nothing more to say. Little did he know that this thread would become infamous. A couple pages later, someone makes some connections, and it looks like he actually might have been trying to manipulate the market, because he owns some other Giannis stuff, and as you can imagine, that didn't go over well, and he was ultimately banned. Now, eventually, this card, remember it was still damaged, even though the stain was gone, but it made its way back to Panini, and they agreed to remake it. And that process took roughly a year and a half, and the signature that came back the second time was an abbreviated version. If you've seen some of the really early Giannis autos, you'll know that there were a lot more letters in there than there are now. So the second time around, even though the card itself is supposed to be the same card, the autograph is much different. And 
you know, well, that didn't matter to fractional buyers in late 2020 when the card sold for around $1.8 million. So we all have our selling regrets, probably not as big of a price differential as this one, but if you stay in this hobby long enough, you live and you move on. And likewise, I'm going to move on to talking about the 2014-2015 Logoman season. So last week I mentioned that the NBA switched to a vinyl Logoman patch when it partnered with Nike in 2017. We did, however, see some of these vinyl Logoman patches show up on a few cards prior to that, and I remember people weren't happy about it. And the oldest one, the, the first year that I remember seeing that is 2014. And I, you know, I searched back through some cards, and that's still the oldest one that I could find. Um, I think there's one, I think one of them still for sale on Com C. If you look, it's a TJ Warren Adrian Payne booklet. One of the cards has a vinyl patch, one of them is stitched, so it's kind of you know, kind of weird looking. Um, and then even several years later, we were still getting stitched Logo Man cards on player-worn materials from rookies. So I don't know what was going on in 2014, but we definitely got some vinyl Logo Man patches over the course of the year. Um, my favorite Logo Man antidote involving a 2014-2015 card, however, actually surfaced around March of 2016. That was when a poster logged on to Blowout and created a thread titled NBA Rookie Logo Man Booklet Cut. Okay, and just for reference, in 2014, 2015, and in other years as well, but there were these horizontal booklets that had um, two Logo Man patches in them for different players. So in this particular thread, he showed a picture of just a horizontal Zach Levine logo man and he said this is not my card a collector on Instagram posted this and he said he cut it I'm not sure but I think Doug McDermott was on the other half anyway this doesn't look as bad as I thought it would well eventually pictures of the other half showed up and yes it was Doug McDermott and um, there were also pictures of the attached version that showed up so the story is pretty simple player collectors of each player wanted this logo man booklet only one person could have it in its original form, so they agreed to actually cut the card in half. They cut the booklet in half. How's that for fractional ownership? Well, there was a little support for this move in the thread, but most of the responses were pretty critical. For example, one person said, No words can express the sheer stupidity of what some people do. Well, you know what? You can call me stupid because I think it's a, fa a fantastic idea and I was 100% supportive of it. And normally I'm not a big fan of defacing cards, but here you've got two collectors. They knew what they wanted. They documented the move publicly and they're both happy. So kudos to both sides. I hope those are still locked up in player collections and I hope both sides are still happy. On to the next year. Okay. A couple of interesting things happened with 2015-2016 products. First off, there was a Logo Man set in Gala, which, you know, nothing wrong with that. And for whatever reason, though, the patches were all sideways. I don't understand that decision at all. It left a lot of people stumped, but it's something that really sticks out to me from that year. The biggest story, though, revolves around two of Panini's staple high-end products, and a couple of Kristaps Porzingis Logo Man cards. By this point in the season, I would say that these were the product hit, even more so than Carl Anthony Towns. So 
Um, the story goes, a, a collector in Taiwan was opening some 2015-2016 Immaculate, and he pulled the Porzingis 101 Logoman Auto, which was awesome, except it wasn't an Immaculate card. It was from Flawless, which had not come out yet. So this prompted a lot of questions such as, you know, is this actually real? How did this happen? Is there still an Immaculate 101 to chase? You know, does this take its place? Well, you know, Panini had to say something, and shortly after they did, they created a blog post where they said, the recent release of 2015-2016 Immaculate Basketball unintentionally included the Porzingis 101 Logoman Auto produced for Flawless Basketball, which begins packing out Friday. After thoroughly researching the situation, company officials discovered that the Porzingis Logoman autographs for both products were miscatalogued and placed into the wrong packout queue. The Flawless Logoman was included in Immaculate. The Immaculate Logoman will be packed out in Flawless. And I know accidents happen. And it was probably as simple as them receiving the cards. Like they said, they miscatalogued them. So they got them from Porzingis. They probably just put them in the wrong spot. But the fact that it was the biggest chase card in the entire product, um, that was pretty funny. I really enjoyed that that year. Okay. You know, it's hard to follow those last three stories. You had the Giannis, you had the cut booklet, you had the Porzingis logo, man. It's hard to follow those with something bigger. And to be frank, I, I didn't find the handful or so years after this to be as juicy when it came to cardboard drama. Um, or a lot of the stories that are out there dealt more with sales or, you know, disputes of private sales and market data. It was a lot of card was bought for X, card sold for Y. So I'm not going to focus on those kind of things. I'm also going to just entirely skip 2016, 2017, because there's nothing of significance dealing with Logoman cards that I can recall from that season. 2017 was a different story, though. Like I said, that was the first season Nike took over and brought with it the vinyl Logoman patches. So that was also the year that we got the first really publicized Logoman bounty from Blowout. And throughout the years, there have been people that have put out classifieds or put out wanted lists in Beckett Magazine. One of them was a big card shop from overseas. But 2017-2018 had the first one I know of that mobilized the blowout forums and group breaking and social media in order to make a really big push. And for context, in April of 2018, blowout had a bounty out for the Otani Superfractor. It's a baseball card. And that created a lot of buzz, and I would say overall it went well for them. And I don't know what that one ended up at or even if it was pulled. I think it was, but don't quote me on that. But at one point, the bounty that they were offering for that card was as high as $100,000. And October rolls around, and Blowout then announces that they're going to offer a bounty for the National Treasures Jason Tatum Logoman Auto 101. I believe the starting price was $50,000 and it eventually ended up at $90,000. And there were a couple of theories behind this. A lot of people speculated that they had a buyer lined up for this thing behind the scenes already, and other people thought they might be doing it to help move boxes a little quicker, right? If you can motivate people to want to open boxes and you're selling boxes, you know, that's a great thing. So I think it's plausible that both were likely true. 
And it was also well documented at the time that there was a customer that bought into tons and tons of Celtic brakes with some of the big breakers, primarily platinum. Um, I've seen people say that he bought into even hundreds of brakes. And the Tatum Logo Man was the big chase. Some people think that he was the person that was the potential buyer that Blowout had lined up. Either way, you know, I don't, I don't know that. Either way, we're in 2021 now, and this card has never surfaced for public view. That doesn't mean it wasn't pulled. Believe it or not, there are actually a lot of big buyers out there that don't need to flex every time they get a big card, but it hasn't shown up anywhere. And who knows what it would sell for today if it did. Okay, moving on. Um, despite the exciting rookie class, there really weren't any real exciting Logo Man happenings from the 2018-2019 season that I recall. Um, I will say, though, I noticed now that Nike had been making jerseys for a year or two, a lot of the veteran cards were now using the vinyl patches, which they just look cheap to me. Um, they don't look as classy. They don't look as nice, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, Opulence had a couple of nice Logo Man sets that year. One of them featured four different rookies on one card. The other one was part of the NBA Finals set. And I mentioned earlier that the Finals Logo Man patches started in Preferred. They they actually moved to Opulence in 2017. So 20 the 2018 set continued that, and they were nice. But um, that was really you know all that happened with Logo Man. I know there was some Luca stuff happening, but we didn't see the bounty. Um, we didn't see all of the the fun happenings that maybe we had with Tatum, or that we would get the next year with Zion. And as I inch toward the end of this episode. I'm changing the rules a bit. I said I was only going to look at pack-pulled, dedicated Logoman patches. Well, remember our theme song for 2020, which is Weird Al's Everything You Know Is Wrong. Logoman cards coming out of packs. That was so 2018. As you guys know, Zion Mania helped usher in the era of blockchain and Dutch auctions, direct sales, and so on and so on. So in December of 2019, Panini announced that they would print money. I'm sorry. I meant to say that they would sell 10 National Treasures branded blockchain cards a week for 10 weeks. And unlike some of the other cards from the blockchain program, these cards all came with a one-on-one physical counterpart. Um, so remember, most of the ones that Panini produced for direct sale on their website all had a physical version the ones that came as redemptions in packs were only digital. Very confusing. But anyway, um, so the rookies that I saw were mostly signed on cards and the, the veterans were sticker autos. There were other blockchain-related offerings as the season progressed. Some of them were digital only. Panini switched back to more physical offerings as the digital sales tapered off. It was all very confusing. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Just be careful if you're ever buying something that has the blockchain branding. But um, as far as traditional, old-school, pack-pulled Logo Man patches go, 2020 brought back the blowout bounty, this time for Zion. Actually, there were competing bounties. So I know um, I don't know if they were the first one to offer, but they're definitely the, the lowest big offer that I saw. Grand Slam Collectibles offered $350,000. Now remember, Tatum's offer was 90,000. So we started Zion at 350. Well, Blowout said, you know what, we're going to up that to 500,000. And then there was a high-end collector on Instagram that has owned some of the Lucas stuff 
that was offering 550000 so he upped Blowout's offer. And similar to the Tatum, that Zion 1-1 autograph logo, man, has not surfaced. And out of the two, you know what, I think Tatum is more likely to turn up because I feel like a lot of people are stashing sealed wax now, a lot more than in 2017 at least, but who really knows. Okay, the last note I want to make about this past season and Logoman revolves around the Spectra brand. Um, over the last several years, I've seen Logoman tags on some of the 101 Nebula sets, but the 2019-2020 Rookie Nebula patch autos had an actual Logoman patch in them. Um which, by the way, I, I think they're hideous. But to my knowledge, this is the first ever pack-pulled Chromium Logo Man set. And this seems like a product of the times to me because, as we all know, Chromium cards were all the rage in 2020. Um, so much so that, speaking of hideous, Panini made hideous Prism blockchain Logo Man cards for some players. But unlike Spectra, these were not pack-pulled. All right. There you have it. Um, I tried to, I actually tried to condense this down a little bit. Um, like I said last week, please understand that I couldn't cover everything in detail. I hope I didn't omit anything that was major. I know there's some offshoot stuff like Black Friday and Father's Day and, um, industry summit patches and there's leaf stuff. I could have gone into that. I could have added more to this, but I feel like there's already an abundance of information to take in. So maybe there was something I said today, either in the intro or the mail segment, or even the Logo Man segment that resonated with you, feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site. This is very simple, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Before you go to purchase or bid on an item, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. You'll see a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow that click. It's a simple way to support the show, but if multiple people do it, it really helps me out. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime... If you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell, and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.